When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Morris Ardwan, co-host of the podcast Queer Voices of the South, which is found under the LGBTQ studies on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking with Chris McLaughlin about her book, Mississippi Barking, Hurricane Katrina and the Life that Went to the Dogs, which was released in August by the University Press of Mississippi. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks so much, Morris. Glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Um, we have so many things to talk about, so I'm going to get right to it. I want to introduce the listeners to who you are, uh, a little bit about Chris McLaughlin. She is the founder and executive director of the Animal Rescue Front, a graduate of the University of Massachusetts at Boston with a BA in Earth Sciences, and she lives in Massachusetts with two cats. This is her first book. Uh, and here's a little bit about the book itself. On August 29th, 2005, the worst natural disaster in the history of the United States devastated the city of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast of Louisiana and Mississippi. Like many others in America and around the world, Chris McLaughlin watched the tragedy of Katrina unfold on a television screen from the comfort of her living room on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. In the devastation afterwards, almost 2,000 people and an estimated 250,000 animals perished. Miraculously, many pets did manage to survive, but in the months that followed the hurricane, thousands of them were fending for themselves in the ruins of devastated neighborhoods. They roamed the streets in feral packs or struck out alone. Their plight triggered a grassroots rescue effort unlike any this country had ever seen, and while relief organizations such as the Red Cross were tending to the human survivors, and movie stars and celebrities were airlifting food and endorsing seven-figure checks, a much smaller and meagerly funded effort was underway to save the four-legged victims. With no prior experience in disaster response and no real grasp of the hell that awaited them, scores of animal lovers, including McLaughlin, made their way to the Gulf Coast to help in any way they could. Including photos from four-time Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Carol Guzzi, Mississippi Barking spans the course of two years as McLaughlin and others ventured into the wreckage of the Gulf Coast to rescue the animals left behind. McLaughlin tells the moving stories of the people she met along the way, both those who lost everything to the hurricane and those working beside her, rescuing and transporting animals away from the neglected, derelict conditions in which they, were, in which they barely survived. Within this story of tragedy and cruelty, suffering and ignorance, Mississippi Barking also bears witness to selfless acts of bravery and compassion and the beauty and heroics of those who risked everything to save the animals that could not save themselves. Um, I get emotional just reading that um, because as a reader of your book, I have to tell you, I had to stop several times because mm-hmm. it choked me up. And it just, it does that if you have a heart and you really have a gift uh, for getting at the heart of these kinds of uh, the stories that you're going to tell. Um, I, I wanted to know, first off, Chris, um, there, are, there are a lot of reasons for book writing, but let's talk about the, about the process of actually writing a book. What made you do it? I'm sure people told you as it was happening, oh, God, this would make a great book. Um, so I, 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 uh, I guess that's part of it. But, but what made you um, get out there or get to you down, down to your t- computer and write a book? That's serious business. The book actually was born out of about 55 pages of emails that I had started writing um, probably two weeks after Katrina. 
when my sister went down to the Gulf Coast and she would report back to me every day what what she was experiencing and what was going on. And the email list was compiled of folks that had donated money to her to go down and to help with the animals. And the, the this email list just kind of grew and grew. So these people had been donating money um, to my sister and they wanted to know what was going on. So my sister would call me at the end of her day and I'd write out this email. Then when I ultimately went down to the Gulf Coast myself, I was writing emails to the people that were supporting me. And I had about 50, like I said, I had about 55 pages of emails that were written in the moment. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to remember dialogue or dates or experiences or people I met along the way, conversations. I had I already had a lot of that information available to me. And after a couple of years, you know, I had always wanted to be a writer when I was 11 years old. It's the one thing I remember wanting to be. uh, It's the first thing I remember wanting to be as a kid. And I wrote poetry in high school. It was all you want. If you think the book was depressing, you should read my poetry when I'm (laughs) drug and alcohol addicted and, you know, going through this miserable childhood and coming out at the age of 15 and 1974. And it was just, oh my God, it was just so depressing. But anyway, to make a long story short, that was basically the foundation of the book. And I did not believe that I possessed the ability to write this book. I I had absolutely no faith or confidence in my ability to write this book. And people kept saying to me, you're such a great, you know, you're such a great writer. You're such a great writer. Of course you can write this book. You need to write this book. This needs to be a book. And, um, and I, around 2012, I met with a ghost writer who was a pretty big deal. She, had a New York Times bestseller, and she had an agent, and she was talking, you know, six-figure movie contracts we were going to get for the story, and we were going to get a writing advance, and blah, 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 blah. And that never transpired, thankfully, because ultimately what ended up happening was I had to believe that I was able to write this book, and I sat down to do it. Um, and I honestly, I got really lucky when it comes to the university of Mississippi press, they did not bat an eye. They wanted this book the moment they heard about it. So I was very, very lucky, but that's basically how the book came to be. Oh, uh, thank you. I, I, um, I'm there with you. The university press of Mississippi has a wonderful collection and I feel so flattered that they, they put my book along with it along with yours and others um and they accept it so uh, it, i i know how big of a deal that is i felt it personally myself so congratulations um Thank you. i'm I, I think a lot of people are going to be thrilled that this book exists um and i would love for you to set up the the book the story um by reading some some from uh the very front end of the book where you describe what your what you get your what you got yourself into sure Uh, So it's important for me, and when I do a reading, I always note this, but the prologue is actually a verbatim email that I wrote in January of 2006. So basically, we're talking about five months post-Katrina. So the prologue is one of those emails. And the other thing that I want to mention for the listeners is that I reference my organization, um... And the, the name of my organization is Animal Rescue Front, but for, sh- for, for the sake of not having to say that all the time, um, our acronym is ARF, which just kind of happens to be what a lot of people think dogs do is ARF or BARF. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, here we go. Dear supporters, supporters of ARF, it has been almost five months since the levees broke in New Orleans. Five months since Katrina wiped the slate clean along the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. 
five months since the worst natural and animal disaster occurred in our country. During these past months, ARF has been among the hundreds of volunteers who fought to the Gulf to save the animals of Katrina. We crawled under buildings to pull out a feral dog or a litter of puppies living in the filth. We drove the streets at night, searching out the packs who formed as a means of survival. We carried the wounded, fed the starving, and hoped that more could be done for the animals. We drove them up the East Coast. We found them new homes, and we watched them die. We did so much with so little. It's been over a week now since I returned home. Having some distance from the destruction has paved the way for some reflection. It's amazing what sleep will do for a tired soul. I have hope that somehow, some way, we will all learn from the lessons Katrina taught us. We will learn that if we don't care, we can't expect others to. If we don't watch over our four-legged friends, no one will. If we don't strengthen the levees, the levees will break. Natural disasters will continue to happen. We can all count on that. What we don't need to accept is the indifference we witnessed in the aftermath. Because the truth is, Katrina happened to all of us. It happened in every corner of our country. It happened whether we chose to look or not. I thank you for looking. I thank you for caring about the animals. They are still out there. When I first went to Mississippi and New Orleans, my life looked much different than it does today. In some ways, I am much stronger for the experience, and in some, I am much more disillusioned. What I've learned is that the building of levees begins at home. Caring about each other begins with us. It took a country of people to care about the Katrina kids. Please keep caring. In the coming weeks, ARF will be facilitating transports out of the Gulf Coast. We need good homes for the kids. We want you to never forget Waveland or Manuel Williams, who lost his beloved child Missy at the Superdome. Please hold on tight to them so when the levees break again, they will not get swept away. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter One, A Distant Storm, October 2005. The I-10 out of Mobile, Alabama is a straight shot into a setting sun. North of the interstate, there are downed trees. To the south, there are downed cities. Biloxi, Gulfport, Long Beach, Bay St. Louis, Waveland. The miles tick by, dusk comes, and the sky turns from gold to rose to lilac. As Mobile slips from my rearview mirror, the world around me turns black. The only light is oncoming traffic tractor trailers, and emergency vehicles making their way east. I'm on a three-lane in the lone vehicle heading west. It has been two months since the Gulf Coast was decimated by the worst natural disaster ever to hit the United States. I am driving a borrowed SUV loaded with bottled water, canned Starbucks coffee, and milk-bone dog biscuits. My destination is an animal shelter. Hurricane damaged and flood water condemned, yet full to capacity in Waveland, Mississippi. Ground zero for a hurricane named Katrina. Mississippi Route 603 intersects the I-10 just west of Bay St. Louis and runs south toward Waveland in the Gulf of Mexico. Long a destination for beachgoers and fishing enthusiasts, the Gulf is a popular tourist attraction but on this late October night, there is nothing picturesque about it. My headlights expose fractured light poles protruding from the earth, their white metal like broken bones. Turning south on Mississippi 603, I see the remains of a gas station directly across the road. The metal roofing caved in and a few gas pumps stand at attention in the mud. Amidst the rubble, they look like weary, tattered soldiers barely erect, arms by their sides. A quarter mile down the road, I see the empty shell of a motel haunted in the gloom, its windows blown out and its doors missing. Further down, another gas station lies in a deathbed of twisted metal and broken brick. Tattered flags of torn cloth flapped in the wind, some caught in the branches of uprooted trees that had been flung in all directions. On my left, 
a dishwashing machine half buried in the mud, evidence that someone's kitchen was gone. Beds and bicycles, splintered furniture and chunks of roof, insulation and drywall littered the road on both sides. Abandoned cars and trucks embedded in the median strip, buried to the tops of their wheel wells. Holy shit. I had never felt so alone. There wasn't a sign of life in any direction. Two months had passed since Katrina, but in South Mississippi, there were no National Guard, police, or fire trucks. There was no sign of life. It was just after 10 p.m., and the two-lane to the shelter was deserted. The landscape was drenched in the pitch black. It felt like I was in a dystopian movie, the last person alive, the hum of my engine, the last sound on earth. It was exciting in an eerie sort of way. I reached for my cell phone to call Eric Phelps, an employee with an international animal welfare organization in defense of animals. He and his then-wife, Christy, had been working at the Waveland Animal Shelter on a team dispatched from the Pacific Northwestern United States. Before I left Massachusetts, we had spoken, and he had warned me that I'd have to call him when I got to Waveland. The lack of street signs made it impossible to get my bearings or navigate roads, and the animal shelter was hard to find. He was expecting my call. Hey, you made it. Yeah, I'm here. It only took me a day and a half. I can't believe how bad it looks around here. I leaned forward, squinting, trying to find something to tell me where I was. Yeah, and you should see New Orleans. It's a mess. We got delayed picking up some kittens and won't be back until really late. I'm sorry we're not there to meet you. He sounded tired. It's okay. I'm sure there'll be plenty for me to do. How do I get to the shelter? He stayed on the phone with me. After crossing over what appeared to be I-90, Eric told me to take my first right. The only indications that I was at my first right were the many handwritten signs advertising brush and metal hauling and something called home removal. He talked to me through the twists and turns of a hurricane-shattered neighborhood. It was slow going. The roads were pocked with craters, their depths difficult to judge in the dark. But eventually I arrived at a large two-story metal structure that Eric assured me was the Waveland Fire Station. It was the first two-story building I had seen since exiting the interstate. Its hulking metal structure held up to the storm, but the few windows were covered in a blue tarp and its large bay doors were closed tight. Eric told me the shelter was behind the station, so I pulled around back. I approached a small building, an oversized shed. A dim source of light silhouetted a swath of a dusty, dry parking area. The light coming from a dirty bulb exposed and dangling from a white electrical cord in the open doorway of the shack. It cast a dim glow. A chain link fence that had seen its better days surrounded the building. I pulled in and parked. There was barking from inside. I opened the car door in the late night Mississippi humidity surrounded me. Within seconds, it felt dense and slick on my skin. I stepped out into it and stretched my cramped legs, noticing that the heat felt surprisingly good after hundreds of miles of air conditioning. Still, I was unnerved by the lack of life. I was only a mile from Waveland's busiest intersection on a Friday night, but there were no parties to attend or baseball games to watch. It was just the dogs and me, 1,600 miles away from home. Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, emotional. Um, I, I, as a reader, when I read that, I, it, it kind of, I, it, it's so visual, so, so graphic. Um, you captured that beautifully. Um, and I, 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 it, it hurts to hear it. I'm, as you know, from down there myself, um, I live in New York now, but that's home for me. Um, tell us how you, um, became you. Um, tell us about your childhood. You mentioned earlier some of that, but, but to put it, put in context, who are you, Chris? 
um, your, your, your early days growing up, because um, you, you, you get into that right after you talk about some of these things that you just read uh, about who you are. Tell us about a little bit more about yourself. Well, I was born just outside of Boston. So I'm a Yankee through and through, which was probably my greatest strength and my greatest liability when I ended up down in, in Mississippi. Uh, it still is when I go down there. Um, and uh, I was, I'm the oldest child in, in my family. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, in, in a lot of respects, it was somewhat of a typical upbringing in terms of, you know, we didn't really talk about emotions. We didn't say, I love you. Parents, you know, put a roof over your head, made sure you had clean clothes and that you had food. And that was really about it. You know, we ran the streets at night and uh, I was a tomboy. Uh, I was raped when I was five. That was probably uh, one of the most impactful things that's happened in my life uh, for, for obvious reasons. And shortly after that happened, my my parents cut my hair very very short and i was already a tomboy but i really took that to mean that what had happened to me was because i was a girl and i tried to pass for being a boy for the next couple of years really until i was 11 and was forced to put on my first bra which absolutely mortified me but i was really really good at sports i was very athletic I was also uh, a very naive kid, a very kind-hearted kid, and um, I got picked on a lot. I, you know, I was made fun of a lot. And when I turned 12, I discovered alcohol, and that absolutely unequivocally changed my life. I suddenly felt emboldened and empowered and I was no longer shy and I became the life of the party and I was very popular. I mean, I thought it was a, a miracle, a miracle thing. And, you know, by the time I was, I, I, and I never drank socially, by the time I was 14, I was suicidal. So, so, um, you know, I barely made it through high school and, um, but uh, you know, something, I don't know, something, made me persevere. I loved animals from my earliest age. And I was fortunate that I got sober when I was 24. It was right after really my third suicide attempt. And um, I got sober. That was 1984. And I've been very lucky that I've been sober ever since. Um, I was very successful in an information technology career that I actually started because I knew I'd make a lot of money and I had a cocaine habit. Uh, but it did serve me well through my 30s and into my 40s. Um, actually, my early 40s, right before Katrina, was right around 9-11. Uh, and um, I had been out of work for quite some time when Katrina struck. So I was really just trying to figure out my life and having a hard time making commitment, uh, employment commitments. And, um, you know, I, uh, I wanted, I wanted to do something to make the, I wanted my life to be meaningful. I had this really strong sense that I wanted my life to be meaningful and I had no idea how I was going to make that work, how, how that would happen. And, even when Katrina struck, it didn't occur to me that I was going to drive down there and find it absolutely impossible to leave. I thought I was going to go down and, you know, uh, help some animals and, you know, I'd be down there for a couple of weeks and then I'd come home and then I'd figure it out from there. And that is just not what happened, which hence the subtitle, My Life Going to the Dogs, because 16 years later, and we're still doing exactly what we were doing after Hurricane Katrina insofar as taking animals out of the Gulf Coast and bringing them to safer parts of the country. So, so that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. Wow. That's a, a serious nutshell. Um, congratulations <laughs> on coming through all that. Um, 
that's just um, as emotional as uh, the other parts of your book. Um, but you've, you're there, there was a reason, and um, I think the universe will thank you. Um, if I were the universe, I'd be, I'd be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would love for you to talk about Waveland and then getting to New Orleans. Um, so you you mentioned already in, in your reading that you, you landed in Waveland. Um, and after that, after you'd gotten certain things sorted out or you started learning things or discovering things, you, you headed on to New Orleans. What was New Orleans uh, before you, before all Katrina happened? What was New Orleans to you? How did, what did you know about New Orleans? Oh, gosh. You know, I love that question because I was in love with New Orleans before I ever went there, which was two months post-Katrina. And my introduction to New Orleans was James Lee Burke. Mm. Who I still read everything he writes. I absolutely love his books. The movie The Big Easy and the music in in the movie The Big Easy. There was just something about and and even knowing about Lake Pontchartrain, like I just think that's such a cool word, Pontchartrain. Yeah. There was just something very alluring for me about New Orleans, even though I had never been there. And unfortunately, the first time I saw it was two months post Katrina, but it was literally uh, entertainment, uh, music, that movie, and uh, James Lee Burke books that made me just fall in love with that city. Um, I I was a resident there before all before all that happened before Katrina. Um, then I moved to New York. Um, so like you, I watched Katrina uh, from afar, and my heart was breaking. Um, but the city of New Orleans, I never left New Orleans uh, in my heart. I, I just I wanted to get on to other parts of my career that were more available to me here. Um, but it is a city full of souls, um, mm-hmm. full of spirits and energy that you're not going to find anywhere else. It's got the, the, those visceral things we love, the food and the music that you mentioned. Um, but there's something about the spirit um, and the sounds. The city has its own it snores a certain way, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. it has a sound, um, like the, the steamboats going along the river. Um, mm-hmm. if you happen to be near the levee, um, um, the, the way people talk, um, mm-hmm. it, it is really, uh, unto itself. Um, and people like to compare it to other parts of the world. Oh, it's very Latin America and it's very European. Um, it's very New Orleanian. Yeah. <laughs> I've been all over, the, I've been in other places and New Orleans kind of sort of just changes everything. Mm-hmm. You get there you go, Oh, I get it. It's mm-hmm. really a, a city apart from everything else. Um, but when you got there, unfortunately, you got to see it. You you saw it first in, in it, that condition. And, and one of my sisters told me she was living in Nashville, but she came home to Louisiana. She went home to Louisiana and she was driving back and she gets she's on the interstate and it, it, it diverts her. The traffic is diverted because it says New Orleans closed. Like she yeah. said, how do you close a city? Yeah. Um, and she said, just struck. she pulled over and she she wept. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's um, so. So uh, I, again, I was here um, watching from afar, like you were. Um, you in New Orleans. Your sister was already there, involved. Uh, you mentioned that earlier. Uh, her name is Aletha. Aletha. Althea. Althea. Okay. Yes, yes. Tell us about her work. What was she doing? What's going on? So she had received an email from one of the larger organizations. She was working at Harvard University at the time in the finance department. And she got this email and she just decided that she was going to go. She was going to go down and see if she could help animals. And she uh, she talked to her management team and, and they said, yeah, you can go. And I, I, I think they gave her two weeks off. And she went down mid-September, I believe, right around that time frame. And she was there for about two weeks. Uh, She was actually staying up at Lamar Dixon in Baton Rouge, which was the makeshift shelter that had been created out of the city for the animal rescue community to um, get animals out of the city and, and bring them someplace safe. When, when my sister was there, the city was still flooded and it was still very, very much a police state, if you will. Um, you know, there was a curfew and they, they were really, really strict about it. So 
um, that, you know, she came home and she, she went back. I ended up moving to New Orleans in 2009. I was only there for eight months, which saddens me still to this day, but circumstances led to that. And during that time, she came back to do a transport for me while I was living there. But other than that, it pretty much, uh, it, it, it really affected her, um, in, in a pretty significant way emotionally. Yeah. Um, when you went during the period of, uh, when you drove uh, the first time you get go to New Orleans from Waveland, what was your business there? What did you need to do to accomplish? In, in New Orleans? Yeah. When, when you drove from Waveland to, to New yeah. Orleans. Yeah. Um, you needed to get there. Tell us about the work that had yeah. to happen. Yeah. So I had been, um, because of my background in information technology, I was really good at navigating the net, the internet. And I had a lot of technology to my at my disposal. And I just started figuring things out. I'm like, okay, who are these people that are down there? trying to help the animals. Where are they? What are they doing? How are they getting funded? What are they doing with the animals? What are the shelters in the United States that are taking these animals? And, you know, I was seeing pictures. There was nothing on the news, right? The animals were like, they weren't even a story. They, it, it was just so far from anyone's concern. Um, and I had learned about Waveland. Uh, this is another story, but one morning my sister woke up and they had a hundred volunteers and they had 6,600 addresses where animals had been left behind. And my sister called me on the verge of tears and she said, please send an email to everyone and ask if anyone can, can come and help. And sure enough, I did that. And four people stepped up, one from Florida, one from Mississippi herself, and and a couple from New York. And I write about these people in the book. Anyway, the couple from New York stumbled upon a a makeshift shelter in past Christiane, and they were the ones that told us about Waveland. So when I was going down to New Orleans, I knew Waveland was my first stop. And I had been working to get animals out of that shelter for probably a month before I even got there. I knew that it was a dangerous shelter. I knew the animals could not be left alone. Um, I was working with those folks from indefensive animals that I mentioned. And I went to Waveland. I was there for three nights, but the goal was always to get to New Orleans. I remember the morning I left Waveland with tears in my eyes and saw the highway sign that said New Orleans, 49 miles. And like a chill went up my spine because because of this love affair that I had had with this city that I had never even been to. And I couldn't believe that I was that close. So my goal was to get there, to find Jane Garrison's group. All I knew is they were in the Garden District. That's all I knew. And, and to help in any way that I possibly could. I had a satellite connected laptop. No one had technology. There was no internet. Most of the 504 area code was completely destroyed. So people couldn't even make phone calls. And, you know, with my tech savvy, I was able to help residents find their animals or at least look for them and to start, you know, well, to continue getting animals out of the city on transports. I just wanted to help. I wanted to do anything. Yeah. I, 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 I would have done anything. Um, yeah. Well, as a reader, um, I, and I'm reading that, um, I feel so overwhelmed for you. I'm like, oh, my God, how, how, how can this work? Um, and you took us through it. <laughs> you take us through it in a book, which is um, both uh, devastating um, and um, uh, and encouraging, uh, uplifting, because you found, you found solutions. You found ways to be extremely helpful. Um, yeah. You ended up 
going back towards Waveland um, after time in New Orleans um, because it wasn't over. There were some animals, in particular, um, a few uh, of the uh, four-legged friends who decide who you decided to keep an eye on or, or keep keep tracks on. Um, tell us some some of those stories are just so inspirational. Um, tell us a, your, one of your favorite stories. Uh, you had you, you mentioned several, like in the book, but um, tell us. Uh, some of your favorite stories about particular animals? Well, I think probably the most important story is uh, the Honey Bear Bell story. And it's through her that I realized that this was what I was meant to do with my life. When I arrived at Waveland that first night, I saw her in this horrible cage. You know, it was, it's just this horrible, it was a horrible, horrible shelter. And there she was, this like honey-colored, collie, golden retriever kind of mix. And and I took one look at her and I said, when I leave here, you're coming with me. There was just something about her. I could not leave her there. And sure enough, when I went to New Orleans, I brought her with me. And uh, we lived in the Sequoia that I had borrowed from friends. We lived in the back. Um, and she had heartworm, which is very, very common, sadly, with animals from the South. And, uh, we had no idea if she had been vaccinated. I mean, we didn't know anything. So the first day I brought her to the vet clinic and we started getting her treated for, um, heartworm and some other conditions that she had and get her vaccinated. And anyway, to make a long story short, when I went back to Waveland 12 days later and loaded up my car, the Sequoia, with other animals to drive up to the East, Co- up the East Coast, I knew Honey Bear was coming home with me. And um, I had two dogs of my own at the time. I They were being cared for by friends that I lived with. And Honey Bear stayed with me for about... So, uh, January, February, March. Yeah, about th- about three months while I was getting her well from heartworm. Now, mind you, during this time, I'm flying back and forth because I can't stay away from what is going on uh, down on the Gulf Coast. And, um, and every time I leave, I feel guilty that I've left my friends behind. It was like, oh my God, what if no one shows up tomorrow? What are they going to do? You know? And, um, I knew Honey Bear did not belong to me. I knew, I just knew it in my heart. And I thought to myself, what I want for her is a single man who's not married, has no kids and has no dogs no, no animals. And he is going to tell me that he's in love with her. And that just came to me at, at one point during my time caring for her. And on one of my trips, when I was down in Mississippi in March, trying to, uh, stay away from the people that basically wanted me dead, uh, because I was drawing too much negative attention to the shelter and the city and their lack of care. Um, historically and systemically for the animals. And um, Honey Bear was, uh, was staying with a friend of mine and he pulled into the local coffee shop here and she was sitting up in the passenger seat and my buddy Woody walked by. I did not know Woody at the time. And Woody walked by and he looked at Penn's truck and, and his first thought was, what is Penn doing with my dog? Now, <laughs> mind you, Woody hadn't had a dog in three and a half years because his last dog had been killed tragically in front of him. And he was so broken by it, he vowed he'd never get another dog. And his friends had been saying for years, okay, Woody, it's time. You know, you need, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So he walked by the truck and uh, he went into the coffee shop and he saw Penn and he said, Penn, who, who's that dog in, in your truck? And Penn said, Oh, that's my friend Chris's, you know, she's getting her well, um, but Chris is down on the Gulf Coast and, you know, working and, uh, you know, because of what happened after Katrina and helping out the animals. And Woody said, do you you mean that dog's available for adoption? And Penn said, well, I don't know. 
I, I think so. Maybe why don't we give her a call? So Penn called me and uh, gave me the phone. He said, this is my buddy, Woody, and he wants to talk to you about Honey Bear. And I said, okay. And Woody got on the phone and he said, hi, Chris, my name is Woody. I'm the guy who's in love with your dog. Oh, wow. And I was like, well, there you go. Yeah. Are you married? Nope. Girlfriend? Nope. Kids? Nope. I'm like, all right, well, we need to talk. When I get back, um, we'll meet. And it, it, I, I don't, the rest of the story, I, I, I don't want to tell the rest of the story because it's so incredible. I want readers to really experience it for themselves. Yes. But um, it was, it was that knowing that that dog who had been on this earth for a year and a half, we, we gathered at that point, had survived this storm, had been somehow left at the shelter only to travel all these miles to find, you know, what she deserved from the moment she was born. And I just said to myself, well, if, if that's her story, then that's all the other story too. And I'll, I'm just going to get them from point A to point B. And, and that's what my life is. I get them from point A to point B. That is so wonderful. And I was gonna, I was thinking the same thing. That is the story of so many uh, very lucky animals uh, who came into your life and you came into their life um, that didn't happen, unfortunately, to a lot of them. But there is some hope. There's a lot of hope in this book. Um, a lot of things changed. Uh, with the time left, I want to talk about some of that. Um, Katrina uh, illuminated the disparity in all kinds of disparities in all kinds of ways, not only in the have and have not with the human population, but the animal issue. I know now there are, there are human shelters for abuse victims that now accommodate their pets because before um, it was not, uh, it was, it was, it was very common to say, we'll take you away from your abusive husband, but you can't take your, your dog. Um, and everyone knows who's ever had a dog, that dog is, you know, it's key to my well-being. Uh, so you can't just do that. And the same thing, you have to put yourself in the, in the mindset of those people in, on the, in, during the floods of Katrina who were told by these people in rescue boats, only you can come, come aboard. We can't, we can't take your dog. Um, what would you do? Um, you have to answer that question in a way that, you know, you put your, if you've never had an animal, it's probably easy to say, oh, I would just get on the boat. Um, if you've ever had an animal and you have a heart, there's no way you can leave that animal behind. But it, ha it happened in so many places. It had to happen for so many reasons. Um, but, but laws were changed. Uh, policies were changed. Awareness has definitely changed because of Katrina. So tell us a little bit about that because there's so much optimism I want to leave with the listeners that this is a hard book to read because it is upsetting, but it's also uplifting. Yeah, so that that's very true. Uh, in in a lot of respects, Katrina was the best thing that ever happened to the animals in the Deep South. Um, in in many respects, and also for the people who love those animals and and have been trying to fight the good fight, and their words have fallen on deaf ears for decades. Uh, not just um, in Mississippi, but also in Louisiana and. In 2007, when Gustav um, was threatening the Gulf Coast, it was it was expected to be far worse than Katrina, and that was our first test after Katrina and after federal laws had gone into place that basically said state and federal officials cannot force you to leave your animals behind. And FEMA accommodations have got to allow your animals with you in those accommodations. And when Gustav hit, I happened to be in New Orleans and the Waveland Animal Shelter called me. That was, I think it was 2008. Um, they called me, and, or maybe it was 2000. It was 2008. They called me and said, can you evacuate the shelter? And I went and... Uh, got people together and we got all 89 animals out of the shelter. We drove up to the Jackson fairgrounds in Jackson, Mississippi, which is the hub for animal evacuation and 
people with pets on the Gulf Coast. And even though Gustav ended up being not a big deal, it was such a good drill for us to see that it actually worked. Yeah. That people could be evacuated from New Orleans or the Gulf Coast of Mississippi safely with their animals and be located together in the same facility so people did not have to worry about their animals. And the other thing that I want to say, I think this is super important. There was a lot of judgment that went down after Katrina when images did start to arise that animals had been left behind. There was a lot of judgment that people had done that intentionally, that people didn't care about their animals. And and while there was some of that, what there was maybe even more of was people that were forced at gunpoint in some instances to leave their animals behind. Horrible. And it's just a heartbreaking. I mean, we, Katrina exposed so much inhumanity. And I would like to think that 16 years later, we're so much better. I do think that with the federal laws on the books and evacuation centers, I think we're definitely going in the right direction. Um, there's, and there's still a lot we have to do in, in parts of our country in terms of dealing with apathy and ignorance around the value of these precious animals and their lives and really how human they make us. Right. Yes. Um, that is the, to, to me, the takeaway, you, you cannot separate humans and animals. Um, we are all part of the same world. Um, and the, the attitudes before Katrina were very, very uh, casual in many ways. I mean, yes, not to point blame, but there are a lot of people. My father was one of those people. Oh, it's just a dog. Um, yeah. And we were children. Going, it's not just a dog. Yeah. You, know, you, you really do. When people say, this is my baby, I have a dog at home and that's my baby. I actually, that, that is, mm-hmm. you're not taking, you're not going to hurt my dog and, I, and it's coming with me. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going with it, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, um, yeah. So, if anything, the, uh, one of the best dividends I think is awareness. It, yeah, things are not perfect. There's a lot of more work to do, but um, there's more awareness. At least it's questioned now. Back then, it wasn't questioned. It's just right. this way we got to do it. Right. That's why there was a gun in their faces. You know, this is the way it's got to be done. Um, they didn't have an alternative in their minds. It's just the way they had to be done. And so, as horrible and cruel that as that was, it was just it was all ignorance. And I think. There's no excuse for ignorance anymore now. So your work and the work of other people uh, down there has helped propel that. And um, it's a wonderful legacy. You, you, and you said earlier in this t- talk that you wanted to make a difference. Well, I, I think you did, Chris, um, in a way that's going to stay with you. It's going to be on your tombstone. <laughs> Not that mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to your tombstone. But, um, <laughs> you know, you, your legacy is, is locked down now. Um, and um, bless you for for being so wonderful. Um, we don't have a whole lot of time. I wanted to ask you one more thing about your next plans. What's up with you? What's going to happen next? Do you have any more um, uh, words to put down on paper? So, so I think the important thing is that folks know that Animal Rescue Front, founded in the ruins of Hurricane Katrina, is still going strong today, 16 years later. Every two weeks, we leave uh, Madison, Mississippi, with either one or two vehicles that we own now uh, and take the long drive up to New England, and we have a new receiver in Pennsylvania. We have currently saved close to 11,000 animals. Um, That's an approximate number. I didn't really keep track after Katrina. Uh, That's an approximate number on the conservative side but we're a full-fledged 501c3. Um, I'm positioning the organization to survive me, and I want the organization to be there as long as the animals in Louisiana and Mississippi need us. Um, And in terms of writing, yes, I'm very... I, I really wanted to finish this book and devote my energy into... Um, uh, promoting it, marketing it, and so on and so forth. But 
I am going to continue to write. I'm uh, probably going to continue the story on a more personal level. And um, whether it gets published or not, uh, I don't know. But the important thing is that this one was. And I think that this is going to, I hope that this is going to bring some much needed attention to the plight of animals in the Deep South and support for organizations such as ours that are doing all that we can to to help them. So we'll see. We'll, well, we'll see what happens. Congratulations. That Thank is uh, uh, so much to have accomplished. And, 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 uh, and it, what, it would not have happened without people like you. That's like, you know, the, the idea that you, you, you were able to um, get, get yourself uh, a van, get you, uh, fill it up with things you needed and drive down there without any, without any kind of background in that whatsoever and do what you did is remarkable all by itself. Um, so congratulations, um, bless you. you for doing that for, for those of us who love the animals. Um, and I want to, to welcome uh, you to come back. Um, if you ever write anything again, I want you to ping me. Readers are going to know what's next. Okay. Uh, so um, thank you. Uh, I want to leave the readers with this. The book is Mississippi Barking, Hurricane Katrina, and a Life That Went to the Dogs. It's now out uh, from the University Press of Mississippi. You can find it on Amazon and other places where books are sold. Um, I'm one, I want to ask you before I, I sign off, uh, is there going to be an audio book? Because you have a great speaking voice. It's very pleasant to listen to. You tell great stories. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I would have, you know, I thought about that actually when you and I started talking and I thought, huh, I wonder if this could be an audio book. I might have to talk to the press about that. I know it's an ebook, um, but, uh, but thank you for the compliment. And yeah. Um, yeah, you have a great speaking voice. Um, I, I recorded my own book during the pen, beginning of the pandemic from my home. I, I couldn't get into a studio, obviously. Um, it's um, it takes a lot of t time, but when you have a voice as, as crisp and clear as yours is, um, you should use that voice as well. <laughs> Not only your ability to write, but your ability to speak. So I think, and again, these stories you tell great stories. So. Um, I hope that happens. Um, but if not, in the meantime, you can find uh, the book at, at the University Press of Mississippi's website and on Amazon and, um, again, probably Barnes & Noble and the independent booksellers. Um, and um, join us again, everyone, for the next time of Queer Voices of the South. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>